Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. My name is Rijk van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to professional investors about their investment journeys and why they chose a career in managing other people's money. We also discuss how they manage their own money, which is sometimes different to their professional styles, where they are responsible for growing other people's life savings. And the idea is to find those golden nuggets of wisdom from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Linda Eads. She is an investment professional at Food Asset Management. And before joining Food last year, she was at RCM and Counterpoint Asset Management. And before that, she had a stint at PIMCO in London. Linda, thank you so much for joining me. First of all, give us a bit of a background. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to investment? Hi, Rick, and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm an Eastern Cape girl. I grew up in the country, in the Eastern Cape, but I was very lucky because my dad is actually a financial advisor. So I grew up learning about the markets and investing from a very young age. I've always loved maths and numbers and been intrigued by sort of the whole concept of the markets. I ended up actually majoring in economics, and I got an entry-level job at NIB Asset Management. So that was Nedco Investment Bank. And I was absolutely fascinated by how the whole sort of investment market worked. And so I made a nuisance of myself around the portfolio managers. And I started my CFA. And I was also actually doing my BCom Honours part-time at UCT. And eventually, they relented and gave me the opportunity to join the investment team. And that was the start of my investment career. So your father was a financial advisor. Did you, while you were growing up and still young at school, were you exposed to investments that you actually follow your father's advice and invest in certain assets or equities? Yes, absolutely. We actually were taught from very young about the power of compounding returns. We were also taught about the dangers of getting into debt. And I learned that lesson, especially when interest rates were on a tear, when I bought my first property and my mortgage payments went through the roof, something that obviously a lot of people are experiencing today. But we were sort of really taught to you know, invest and leave your investments alone. Don't try and tamper too much with them. So it was actually more about investing in unit trust and sort of broadly diversified portfolios rather than kind of trying to pick stocks in the market at that point in time. So yes, from a very young age, that was an important lesson and it stood with me throughout my entire career. So that's a typical financial advisor approach. Take a good conservative long-term view and hold on to investments because long-term is a lot better than short-term. Can you remember what was the very first share you bought with your own money? So when I started out, which was sort of around when I started as part of the investment team, it was sort of around 2000. 
And at the time, I was told by the senior portfolio managers in the team, who I respected and admired very much, that the two stocks that you absolutely had to hold in your portfolio were Richmond and Anglo-American. And they sort of said, you buy them and you forget about them and you just hold them for the long term. So I bought both Richmond and Anglo-American, but I actually left for London in 2003 and I needed some liquidity. So I actually ended up selling both of those Oh, that's an expensive (laughs) trip. Especially with regards to Richmond. Exactly. Not so much, interestingly, with Anglo-American, if I'd held both those two stocks till today, Richmond would have more than doubled the all-share return. But Anglo-American, even though obviously it's done so spectacularly since the sort of rebound in the resource cycle, it actually would have given me half the returns of the all-share. So two very different companies with two quite different outcomes. Anglo also spun off a few businesses. I don't know if you included that into the calculation, but an interesting one nonetheless. Now, you're a professional investor and you need to manage other people's money and let's say life savings and you have the responsibility to invest that money and you have a big, big impact on the quality of life they will have when they retire. You know, the more you grow the money, the better the lifestyle will be. But do you also invest in your own capacity outside of what you're doing at food because your risk profile will be significantly different to other people saving for retirement. Well, Rick, I do have some direct shares still. Actually, sort of, I've moved in my career to more sort of the business side of asset management. I'm still very involved with the investment team, but a lot of my work is actually in representing the investment team. I've always believed in backing the team that you represent. If you are working for a business, then you should obviously be investing alongside your investors. So I've always done that. But yes, I still hold some direct shares. I think over time, I've always sort of subscribed to similar principles to those that I'd to our investors, which is, you know, diversification is the only free lunch that we have in investing. I think that's particularly important for South Africans. A lot of our fortunes in terms of, you know, our property and our businesses and our careers are tied to the economic cycle domestically. So something I've done quite actively as I've earned and I've sort of had more investable capital is to actually diversify outside of South Africa. So currently, the majority of my investment portfolio actually sits outside of South Africa in global equities. Do you split your retirement planning from discretionary investments? I do have retirement annuity, so I do actually still have quite a big chunk in particularly the Ford Balance Fund. I actually have invested. I want to eat my own cooking with regards to that. But yes, I think as a professional investor, you probably don't really need to have the same kind of constraints on the amount of equities, for instance, that you're able to hold. Of course, there are tax benefits to going that route. So I think it's a balance. I have more actively actually invested in direct equities and global equities. In other words, 100% rather than splitting it along the reg. 28 requirements. And I think if you understand the long-term potential returns in equities versus other asset classes, and you understand sort of what sort of volatility you might be exposed to along the way, and you can stick with it, then, you know, there really is no reason to stick within those constraints. But I think for the average investor, I think those constraints make a lot of sense. If you take a young individual who would like to enter the investment market, normally they are very, very excited. They want to invest in the top companies. 
in South Africa and the world. They open their stockbroking account, most of them at Easy Equities, because it's cheap. And then they face the big question, what now? What do they buy? What would your advice be to such a young professional who would like to enter the investment market but need to start somewhere? How do you approach that? So I would advise them to read as much as they can. And there, obviously, there are books that you can read, and I can suggest some that obviously have been meaningful to me in my career. But also, there's a lot of information that is available via Twitter. There are a lot of commentators. And for the investor to really understand how their DNA is suited to investing. So, you know, if you think about the types of investing, if you tend to be more of a contrarian, you tend to want to be a bit more non conformist, you might be more suited towards investing in deep value opportunities, things that are out of favor, which may be cheap as a result, and being able to stick with that through the cycle until hopefully you're proven correct about your assumption that this was a short-term impact. But most young people would like to invest in companies that increase in value. They want to invest in, in winners. They don't even know what growth and value and the like are. Yes, I think that's my other piece of advice is that if you're investing because you think that the stock market is a get-rich-quick scheme, you're probably going to come unstuck at some point in time. And if you have sort of some dramatic good outcomes over the short term, you may sometimes subscribe that to skill when in fact a lot of that might be luck. So I think it's also about understanding that the stock market is actually a mechanism to allocate capital to businesses and for them to be able to generate a return on that capital over time. So I think it was Charles Ellis, he wrote a fantastic book called Winning the Loser's Game, which was actually sort of saying that, you know, if you want excitement, you must go to the casino. You know, investing, if it's done correctly, should actually be quite boring. It should be about buying businesses because you're allocating capital to these businesses and then holding them for years and three years, five years is a long period of time for a young investor. So they really need to wrap their heads around the fact that if they're expecting dramatic positive outcomes over shorter time horizons, then that comes with a lot of potential risk of getting that wrong. I've spoken to many professional investors in this podcast and I've gotten a sense that these investors are happy if they hit six winners out of 10. So they may see or have four shares within a portfolio which is not performing well. And I think that is the big question is if professional investors only hit six out of 10, amateur investors would not hit six out of 10. I think that is a deduction I make. But I want to talk about those four. The professional investors have four dogs in their portfolio. How long do you hold on to them? Because it's easy to say, listen, buy a share and keep it forever. But sometimes... These shares do not perform well. When do you sell it? Absolutely, Rake. And that's a very difficult question. Something that I would advise investors to do is when they buy a particular stock, that they actually write down the reasons as to why that they've bought into that particular business. Because there will be volatility and there can be significant drawdowns in those stock prices. And at that point in time, they have to ask themselves the question, has the investment thesis changed? Have things changed to such an extent that that is no longer valid? Because, you know, when you say a dog and your portfolio, I remember reading a piece where they said diversification, in other words, having lots of different things in your portfolio, means always regretting something that you hold currently. Because if everything's performing the same, 
then your portfolio is probably highly concentrated and that comes with other risks. So you've got to ask yourself the question, what actually defines a dog? Is it just something that you've bought that's gone down in price? Well, that could rapidly change. And I think if you look at sort of some of the share price movements over the last two years even, let's take NASPAS for instance. I mean, uh, that stock was sold down from its peak when obviously Tencent came under pressure when the Chinese market was sold down. And, you know, if you'd bought it at that point in time, you know, it was down significantly from its peak, but it actually had another 40 odd percent to go. Now, since then, it's actually up sort of 20 to 30% from there. So I think you've got to really understand why you're investing in a business and then remind yourself of that when you're feeling emotional about the price that you're seeing on your phone when you check your easy equities portfolio. And I think that's important. When do you sell? For me, actually, I err on the side of not selling because I know from all the years that I've been in this industry that generally speaking, when you want to sell something, it is not the time to sell. So for instance, my portfolio is very very value-oriented, obviously, sort of given my history in the industry. And if I'd sold out of my sort of South Africa Inc. concentrated portfolio in terms of value, I would have missed out on the rebound that followed thereafter. So generally speaking, I actually tend to try to leave my investments alone. That's generally actually the right thing to do. You worked with Pitful Yun from RCM and now CounterPoint. And he's probably one of the biggest contrarian or deep value investors in the country. And the philosophy is you buy cheap shares of great companies and then you wait until they bounce. And that's what happened in the commodities industry, as you've said. But it took close to a decade to happen. And that takes a lot of patience. Exactly. It does. And the thing is, you know, many investors just don't have the wherewithal to stick with that. So you really need to understand your personality and whether it's suited to going through that. Pitt is the most dyed-in-the-wall sort of unemotional investor that I've ever worked with, and that's massively to his credit as a value investor because you really need that. And I think many investors actually underestimate how they would cope in a sort of situation where you get a dramatic drawdown. And yes, those sort of market environments can persist for a long period of time. So if you think about the decade of ultra-low interest rates and how that pushed up the valuations of many growth businesses, I mean, one of my personal sort of opportunity costs in my own portfolio is because I sort of was very, I think, rigid in my thinking around the price that I was prepared to pay for businesses, I didn't really participate in the whole big tech story that we saw. And that was probably one of the biggest opportunities for investors investors over the last few decades. So, you know, you have to also be consistent, but, you know, being a little bit more open-minded about what constitutes value is a lesson that I've also had to learn through time. But, you know, Pitt's philosophy is that you put a bundle of twigs, as he calls it, and, you know, any individual twig is breakable, but if you put them together, you have a well-diversified portfolio that will deliver the right returns over time. But the big if is if you are able to stick with it, and that's what an investor has to ask themselves. Is my personality suited to this style of investing? It's an excellent point, and it's not easy to implement. You know, young investors do not adopt a specific strategy. That will develop over the years. I'm sure when you were at PIMCO in London, your investment philosophy or the way you approached investments were totally different to what it is today. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think you must remember that, as you correctly pointed out, even the professional investors who have all the best resources, we've got Bloomberg terminals, we've got access to any data, any depth of data. And, you know, our analysts spend sometimes, you know, a month researching one individual investment idea. So the depth of knowledge is enormous relative to obviously what a a direct investor, you know, an amateur investor has at their disposal. I mean, not even to start to really kind of unpack whether they have the technical skills to understand, you know, a company's financials. So I guess what I would advise is for individuals to buy into businesses that they back, you know, whose products they enjoy, where they can see the businesses thriving. And yes, at times you might pay a little bit above an attractive price for it. But if you hold that business and it continues to grow and it continues to deliver a good returns on capital, you'll actually do fine over the long term. So I think unless you really are prepared to do a deep dive and really get to understand, you know, the inner workings of a business, then probably you should err on the side of investing in better quality businesses where, you know, sort of your outcome, you know, your margin for error is probably a lot narrower. Time is not on our side. Linda, now this is the big question everybody is waiting for. What has been your best investment ever? And it doesn't need to be an, a particular share. It can be any asset. But what do you regard as your best investment? So when you say what do you regard as your best investment, that sort of would lead me to a different answer. So when people sort of say, you know, give me an investment idea, I think they always do think about something that's going to make the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time. And if I actually look at my investment portfolio, controversially as a professional investor, that's actually Bitcoin. (laughs) I actually bought Bitcoin because I was quite interested in the whole concept of cryptocurrency and I bought it about $9,000 and now it's sitting obviously just shy of, I think, $30,000. But, you know, understanding what that should be worth is anyone's guess. And it also peaked at $59,000. So I would say that is a speculative punt rather than an investment. I think my best investment decision, and sort of I know that a lot of investors say this, but it's so important to actually imprint this on young investors, is to invest early and to actually allow those investments the benefit of time because time is really your best friend with investing. It'll see you through a lot of, you know, sort of ups and downs. And ultimately, if you buy, you know, businesses that are doing okay, Okay, you probably will, you know, if you diversify your investment ideas, end up with a pretty good outcome. So it was investing early, but also diversifying into global equities from South Africa, given how much of my investment kind of journey from a professional perspective and my property and assets are tied to the sort of local economy. And the biggest dog, the one hopefully you're not too ashamed of, where did you make the biggest mistake? So I actually tend to be quite conservative in terms of allocating risk. So there's never been something that I've invested in that's gone bankrupt or anything like that. Again, you know, probably something that a lot of people invest a lot in, a lot of big proportion of their capital in, which has actually been my worst investment, is our house. You know, we bought in 2010 a house that's more than 100 years old. The property market was quite strong at the time. And I'm pretty sure that the value hasn't even probably kept up with inflation. And that's not even taking into consideration, you know, the thing that people don't consider with property is all your maintenance costs and all the rest along the years. But, you know, it's a lovely family home and we've had many happy memories there. And I guess, you know, not all returns can be measured in purely financial terms. So I'm okay with that investment regardless of that. Property, it's a difficult 
asset class. And of course, you need to live, you need to stay somewhere, you need to eat. And sometimes you don't need to see those type of investments as part of your total investment portfolio because it also forms part of your daily expenses. And yeah, as you say, it's a nice family home and those nice experiences you can't convert into money. Life is not always all about money, but we'll have to leave it there. Linda, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. That was Linda Eid. She is an investment professional at Fuert Asset Management. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rick for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.